Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Andrew Robson, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Happy New Year and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with English champion Andrew Robson about the pleasures of teaching, thoughts on giving back to the game and his latest venture, Daily Bridgecast Videos. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Happy New Year, Jocelyn. Happy New Year to you, Catherine. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Had a wonderful New Year. But you remember that sense of heightened focus that we felt like we were able to access after we played that event with the screens? That post-tournament high. Yes. Well, unfortunately, I think it went away. I think I lost it. It it waned. It it vanished because I'm making all these stupid mistakes again. I don't know what you mean. You know, I've got no idea what you're talking about. She says, <laughs> Riley. I mean, you and I were just playing and you opened two diamonds. I bid two no trump. You bid three diamonds. Someone asks me what it means. And it's like I can't even see your bid. And I'm explaining that you're showing some kind of feature into your hand when your bid was the exact opposite. So I don't know <laughs> if it does like shut down my reasoning powers, if it's a bit of a flowers for Algernon moment and it just fades <laughs> dramatically after a certain point. But yeah, I think I understand. At least you got to say feature. I remember the very first time I was just learning the two no Trump response to a week two opener and how after that the opener was to show a feature. And you said in just the most beautiful way, feature. <laughs> and I was just like, that's so cool that she knew what it was. And the way she said it also was really cool. It's like both. Because I, you know, I was just learning it. This is quite a while ago. Um, and I just have always loved that. So every time anybody alerts it, I think of your voice saying, feature. And it's so nice. But yes, it wasn't a feature. No. It was, I don't got a feature. I got my suit and nothing else. <laughs> That's right. And barely that. And barely that. So don't get excited. No. That was pretty funny. Well, there was a similar situation where, you know, I was like on autopilot and the declarer was leading to ace, queen, blah, blah, blah on the board. I have the king sitting behind the dummy. And I'm totally expecting that the declarer is going to finesse. Yeah. And so I have my king at the ready. 
Declara plays the ace. What do I play the king? I played the king. I was like, oh, my God. So that shows me that that focus is not to be taken for granted. And maybe it's not going to stay where it was. But it's still, I know we're capable of it. So I guess we have to just go and find another tournament with screens and get our, our refresh. Absolutely. I used to play with a partner who would always make a point of taking a bit of time before those last few boards, especially if they've been playing all day or a big tournament, when it was getting to the end and just would try and refresh and remind themselves to apply a little extra focus at that time because that's, you know, just obviously going to be a time when we let our guards down and maybe what we can take away from our experience with the screens as a training regimen is to adopt some kind of strategy like that. It's not going to guard against it, but yep. we now had the experience. Let's double check with ourselves and try and use that moment to really tighten up and try and snap some of that focus back. Yep. Good. I'm sure it'll work. <laughs> Just like that. Yes. I'm going to try. I'm also going to try. Hi, everyone. While we have your attention, we did want to ask for your support. Any amount you can give would be most appreciated. It's quite easy. You just go to our website, sorrypartner.com, click on the support the show tab, and it'll take you to our secure Patreon page. Thanks very much. Now back to the show. So we have a full mailbag Jocelyn, people have been busy writing. So I'm envisioning like sacks and sacks of mail. <laughs> oh yeah, that's 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 it. That's it. <laughs> and from those sacks, I have pulled out two letters for you this week. They're quite long. Would you like me to read them to you? Bring it on. The longer, the better. I love all the letters. Good. I'm glad to hear it because I'm going to read them to you anyway. Regardless. Yeah. Our first letter today is from Pete in Illinois. We get a few letters from people in Illinois, which is very nice. Glad there's a strong bridge community there. Pete writes, hi, Catherine and Jocelyn, big fan of the podcast. Here's the story. I like that intro. Thanks, Pete. When I was newer at Bridge, I developed a partnership with an excellent player, much better than me. He stooped to playing with me because he needed someone, anyone, who would learn and play a complex system that he had created. I, who loved gadgetry, was willing. The system was a highly modified Polish club. I ultimately had to put every bid and variation on flashcards just to keep it freshly in mind. But this is not a story about bidding. <laughs> One evening at a club game, I was on opening lead and selected a singleton trump which, as often happens, exposed his queen at trick one. And he makes a note here to say that he was still a relatively inexperienced player. My partner, a very soft-spoken guy, was clearly not pleased. As luck would have it, a hand popped up later that evening where, on opening lead, the singleton trump grabbed my eye and I tried it again. Again, a bad result, accompanied by a glower from my partner. He kept his cool, merely informing me why leading a singleton trump was a bad idea. After the last round and after the opponents had left the table, he said to me quite calmly, if you ever lead a singleton trump again, that's it. I won't play with you anymore. Eek. Yeah. I thought this was a bit harsh and I was hurt. I didn't know whether to tell him to F off or to start crying. And then he puts in brackets, I'm a grown man. After a pause, I finally got up and left without a word. Several months later, a hand came up where I was on lead and my singleton trump beckoned. It was definitely called for. I knew my partner couldn't have more than two trumps himself and a cross rough was imminent. However, I just gritted my teeth and led something else, shooting us both in the foot. Oh no. As the opponents scored up their top, one helpfully informed me, you know, a Trump lead would have said it. I replied, yes, but my partner has forbidden me from leading a singleton Trump. 
He said, if I do, he's going to leave me. We all looked at my partner and he shrugged. A sheepish smile then crept upon his face. Finally, he said, of course, unless it's right. (laughs) Oh, that is so great. Because I'm sitting there thinking like, I lead singleton trumps. I do that. (laughs) Partners do that to me all the time. It's often a good thing. That's so funny. That's great. Thanks, Nick. That's wonderful. Thanks for sending that in. And our next letter today is also from Peter, another Pete. Wow. Another Pete, not from Illinois. No, no, no. I think this one, well, the letter starts the scene, local bridge club in Birmingham, Alabama, 1979. Okay. Not Illinois. Not Illinois, though I'm not sure if that's where this Peter still lives. Nevertheless, Typical evening duplicate of about 15 tables. I was playing with my roommate and we had already had a couple of less than optimal results, so I guess I pushed it a bit. The gentleman on my right opened three diamonds and I overcalled three hearts with a hand that I had no business bidding on. Partner, of course, was sitting with Fort Knox, including the ace queen little of diamonds, and trotted out Blackwood and eventually placed us in a six-heart contract. Naturally, my diamond holding was two small cards. As the dummy came down, more in frustration with myself, I quietly but audibly blurted out, you know, Fred, we're off an ace plus the effing king of diamonds. The next thing I knew, I saw stars. Turns out my right-hand opponent had taken extreme exception to my language and decked me. He was playing with a 50-something fox of a grandmother and was trying to protect her honour. This guy was a six foot four, 240 pound out of work welder. I jumped out of my seat and was just about to square off with my assailant when the whole room descended on our table and separated us. My eye had filled up with blood and one of the several doctors in the room hustled me off to the men's room to have a look at the damage. That's something that's nice about Bridge is that there's usually a doctor in the house. Plenty of medical assistance close by. The doctor said it was nothing serious, thankfully. I had a shiner for a few weeks, but that's about it. We did manage to finish the round, although that particular deck of cards did have to be replaced. Oh, God. (laughs) Because it was covered with blood. (laughs) That's gross. That is gross. But I'm glad it was replaced. Yes. Good, good, good going, director. Yes, yes. Nice club management there. The following Sunday between sessions of the quarterly Swiss teams, the local board held an impromptu meeting to discuss what, if any, disciplinary action should be taken against the two of us, me for language unbecoming and him for the assault. In the end, we were each barred for 30 days. So, 30 days without bridge. Some notable members of the local board were Frank Stewart, Steve Beatty and Clay Hall. Every time I now run into them, we have a good laugh over what is supposed to be a non-contact sport. Oh, my God. Then there's a a big emoji with a halo underneath, which is very funny. That is hilarious. So I take it six hearts went down and you would think that would be enough of a punishment for poor Pete. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, some people like to express themselves in a full physical kind of way, I guess. Oh, my God. Funny. Thank you for that great story. And if you have any fun stories about Singleton Trump leads or ultimatums from partner, unless it's right, or fisticuffs at the bridge table, please do send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at sorrypartnerpodcast on Instagram or send us a voice message. These links are in the show notes and on the website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Andrew Robson. And note, this episode comes with bonus audio for our Patreon supporters. English champion Andrew Robson kicked off his international bridge career by winning the World Youth Team Championship. He has since won the European Open Championship, two Risingers, three Capgemini Invitational Pairs tournaments, and eight Gold Cup titles. He is also a bridge columnist and a beloved bridge teacher. 
a role that he often combines with his work for various charities. We began by asking if he'd had any interesting hands lately. There was a wacky hand I picked up you know, a short while ago. I picked up eight solid diamonds, ace, king, queen, jack, ten, nine, eight times of diamonds, and five other cards, very low cards, inconsequential. Very big tournament. I think it was the, it's called the Champions Cup, you know, the best of Europe. And we were, I believe we, we were in Riga. I had to arrive late because I was doing some teaching the night before and I, could, I, I couldn't go, go out with the team. And my partner came with me. We were a bit tired. And we, I remember the first match. We were playing against my great friends for a very long time, Sabina Alken and Roy Welland. We both go back to the 80s. I mean, Sabina and I met on an aeroplane going. We were both going to our first tournament uh, in, uh, in Miami in 1986, can you believe? And... We played bridge on the aeroplane, I remember, Sabina and I. And Sabina's gone on to win multiple world championships. She's an amazing player. And so is Roy. And Roy Roy didn't know Sabina at all, actually, at that time. But I knew Roy through New York when I went traveling in the mid to late 80s. I remember he always used to play liars poker with dollar bills. He used to win every single one. Anyway, so we're good mates. But they were beating up on us, my partner and I. And, you know, I think I remember gratuitously doubling a, a four hearts Sabina made two over tricks and it just wasn't going well. I was tired. I'd done a lot of teaching and, you know, I wasn't really ready to play in this huge event. Anyway, so I picked up this eight solid dams and the five other rubbish cards. And I remember my partner, Alexander, passed and Roy opened one club and Roy always opens one club, seemingly on almost any hand. I, I don't know the vagaries of their methods, but he might have clubs, he might not, it seems to me. Anyway, so the devil made me bid three no trumps. Now, I didn't have this vestige of a stopper in any suit except for my eight solid diamonds. So I bid three no trumps, trying to change the sort of mood of the table and get myself really into the event. Sabina doubles, and it went past from Alexander. Roy just hitched a tiny bit and then passed. And now it's sheer lunacy to pass this out because I don't have any stoppers in any suit apart from diamonds. They could run the first 13 tricks. No problem. But I just passed. I mean, I, I didn't think it through because if you stop and analyze it, you realize it's madness. I just passed. Okay, so Sabina thinks for a moment and she leaves the Queen of Hearts, all right? And dummy Alexander's got his cards a little bit of an, in a jumble. They're not very well sorted. And he's sort of trying to get them onto the table and a bit jiggledy-piggledy. And he's putting down these low cards and maybe a jack and something, not very much, maybe even a queen somewhere, which is absolutely useless to me. But then the last card appears which has been hiding, and it's the Ace of Hearts. <laughs> Can you believe that? And he has a diamond for transportation. And he does have a diamond, you're right. <laughs> I thought it would be rude to play it out. I just put my cards on the table and said, I'm so sorry, I got lucky. And it really changed the whole mood. Sabina, I think, found a very well-reasoned lead because she had, I think she didn't have very many hearts, something like Queen Jack 9, Trebleton Heart, and she did have Ace Jack 10, six times of spades. So she could have led a spade, but she probably thought I had to presumably have something for my three-no trumpet, and she didn't want to give me the king of spades or leap, but they could have cashed the first, I think, 11 or maybe even 12 tricks. So that was a pretty fun, fun, fun situation, yeah. And I think we nearly won that tournament. It changed the whole mood. It changed my whole mood. So... <laughs> That's hilarious. So I didn't realize that you could play gambling three no trump in an overcall situation. I've always only played it as an opener. So that's really interesting. Well, I think you're supposed to have you're supposed to have a little something outside. I see. I mean, I didn't have any stopper in Roy's clubs. I didn't have any stopper in either May. I, I think you can gamble it out with, you know, little bit of stoppers. Uh, you don't have to have a stopper in every suit. It's a bit of a gamble. I mean, I obviously should in theory have run to four downs, but I just thought I'm not vulnerable against vulnerable. Let's say they could miss defend, but even if they cash out and I go, you know, five down, then maybe they can make a slam. So I just thought, let's do it. Sometimes the devil makes you do things. Love it. Even against Sabina Arkin. The great Sabina. She is too. Yeah. What's the biggest slamozzle or muck up that you've ever had at the table? Well, there's been certainly plenty of those. But I do remember quite a long time ago, I was playing an international match with, with my great partner for many years, Tony Forrester, who I love, and he's godfather to one of my daughters. But he does, you know, if you make a mistake, he, he, he does, he's not absolutely perfect in his control. Just in the moment, he's absolutely fine at the end of the, end of the session. 
And uh, we were playing, I don't know why I agreed to do this, but we were playing that an opening bit of two spades showed either majors or minors. So he's opened two spades and it's gone pass on my right and I've got four spades in my hand and I've got five clubs in my hand and not a very good hand, you know, one or two bits involved. So I'm thinking I can race this to three spades because if he's got the majors, then we've got a spade fit. And if he's got the minors, then we've got a club fit. And I can afford for him to go to four clubs because I've got five of them. So I race to three spades and it goes double and Tony redoubles. So I thought, well, he must have a maximum with quite good spades because if he didn't have spades, he would just bid four clubs. So I passed... Three spades redoubled. He had to play four small opposite of void. Vulnerable. And he went six down, 3,400. Oh, my God. Funnily enough, actually, on the very next board, I don't know how I managed to get myself together, but I had to play quite a tricky five clubs and um, managed to make it on a sort of substitute trump type situation. And he did have the grace to, we played with screens, and he did have the grace to throw a little bit of paper over the, uh, over the screen. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> but it was quite a lot of chuntering as I tabled my four small spades opposite his void. I passed a splinter playing with Tony as well. So he's had to play four spades with two small opposite a singleton. <laughs> so there was another occasion where my partner opens one spade and I... I've got quite a nice hand. I've got three spades in my hand. I've got a singleton heart in my hand. I've got six clubs, I think, maybe 14 points, something like that. So he opens a spade and I bid two clubs and he bids two spades. Actually, I think I had a void heart. That's right. I had a void heart, not a singleton, a void heart. So he, he opens a spade. I bid two clubs. He bids two spades. So I now bid four hearts, splinter bid, looking for a spade slam, technically correct. And it goes double you know, lead directing double, whatever. Pass from partner, pass. Now, I should have realized that my partner perhaps hadn't slept very well. You know, one has to always, I always, by the way, ask my partners how they've slept. Not because I'm a sort of nice, sympathetic sort of person and I hope they've had a nice night's sleep, but because if they've said they haven't slept well, then I will play differently. I will defend differently. I won't always pay them to have played the perfect suit preference spot card or made the perfect bid. Whereas if they've slept well and they're looking on top of things, then maybe I will. So anyway, he, he, I don't think he's slept real. So I should definitely, when he passed, I should have realized that an accident was brewing. <laughs> so I did ridiculously all against my better instincts. And I made the correct technical call here, which is to redouble, to say that actually my, my splinter is first round control of void and not a small singleton. Anyway, so the next player sort of laughs as if to say, well, that's not going to be the final contract, is it? But it absolutely was the final contract because my partner passes, and that was 3,400 as well. <laughs> Six down, doubled, vulnerable. But we did win the match. That was at the Spring Forsums. <laughs> this was not a team's event. It was just so a team's event. It was. It was so a team's event, yes. Our teammates were, I think, amused. I like to think amused. <laughs> Do you have a favorite tournament that you like to play? Well, the favourite tournament, I've always enjoyed the rising. I like the cut and thrust of the win-loss game, border match, as they call it. Uh, England, I like the spring foursomes tournament. But you know, I love, I love all tournaments, really. But I do like to be playing in an interesting place. I'm not the sort of player who doesn't even know where they are. I do like to get out and have bike rides and stuff in the off time. So I do like to be in the place that I'm in, not just inside some conference centre. What, what is the most memorable or interesting place that you've ever played? Well, I loved the World Championships in Bali, actually, in 2013. I mean, that was pretty cool. You could be swimming in the sea and then half an hour later, you could be playing against the world's best. So I, I suppose that, that's got to be up there. So yeah, Bali, that was amazing. Not quite as auspicious a circumstance, not a world championship, but I, I, I used to, a couple of times anyway, ran bridge on a cruise ship. And uh, I remember one wonderful occasion where I was running the bridge and Patrick French, who's quite a famous writer, actually, he's written about the great game and uh, Francis Young, husband, super chap. He was a guest lecturer and uh, we got friendly and he knew how to take tricks 
and he knew what trumps were, but he had no idea about bidding, so he'd never played bridge. And he said, well, I'd like to join in one night. And so the night arrived when we were having just gentle supervised bridge after after dinner, and I was sitting with Patrick over dinner, and the deal was that I was going to explain how to play bridge over dinner. But, you know, we got talking about other things, as you do, and we finished the dinner, and I said, well, I've got to go now because I've got to host the, the bridge session. And Patrick said, well, I guess I can't really come along because, you know, you didn't get a chance to tell me about bridge and how to play bridge and, and this bidding thing. And we were walking along the corridors of the bridge room. I said, listen, Patrick, okay, here's the nub of it in five seconds, all right? So what's going to happen is the cards are going to be dealt. You're going to sort them out into suits, all fine. And then what's going to happen is someone's going to say some sort of weird code. They're going to say a number, and then they're going to say, you know, like a suit or no trumps, all right? And that's going to go down around in a clockwise rotation. And then it's going to come to you, all right? And uh, what I want you to do is I want you to look at your cards as though you're thinking, and then after about two or three seconds, I want you to say, pass, okay? That's all you have to do, all right? And I'll do the rest. So it's all going great. I'm doing all the bidding for the partnership, and we're actually we're playing against these charming Yorkshire ladies in the north of England, and we're actually doing quite well. You know, I'm playing most of the contract, and Patrick can actually defend quite well. He, he knows when to win tricks, and he knows when to play low and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, so then towards the end, having a lovely time, and then this deal comes along. And what happens is, on Patrick's left, the lady passes, and I've got only one point in my hand, just one jack, so I certainly can't be doing anything. I can't guess Patrick's hand and do anything. So I pass. And then the, the next Yorkshire lady also passes, and Patrick's fourth to speak. So obviously Patrick's got the biggest hand in history. So Patrick looks into his surely wonderful cards, after in about a couple of seconds pause, he says, pass, because of course he doesn't know any different. And so I'm saying, right, okay, let's all throw the hand in. It's a throw in and we'll go on to the next deal because I don't want, obviously I don't want to, them to, to realise what's going on. But unfortunately, Patrick's a bit slow on the uptake and doesn't get his cards down quick enough. And the Yorkshire ladies see his cards and he's got 27 points. <laughs> and he's passed. <laughs> he's got 27 points. And I was sort of mortified because I thought they might think that we were patronizing them or having a bit of fun on their, at their cost. But we had a throw in and we had another deal. But the, I felt the atmosphere wasn't quite the same. And I did feel a bit awkward about the whole thing. But we finished and it was fine. And they were charming. Anyway, so I didn't sleep that well that night because I thought maybe it wasn't quite the right thing to do to uh, take advantage of their niceness when he couldn't really play. But met one of the ladies at breakfast the following morning and she said, we had such a lovely evening. I loved your friend. He was so nice. I didn't think he was terribly good at bidding, though. <laughs> but they, but they didn't, they didn't realise that he hadn't taken a single bid all night. <laughs> that was pretty funny. That's great. That's wonderful. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened when you were playing bridge? Well, I think that's got to be up there. Certainly, I've had some funny experiences teaching. I remember one occasion, I had this charming chap. He was such a lovely man. Anyway, so he's in his second class. You know, he's done the beginners and he's in the follow-on class. And he's playing the hand and I'm sort of looking over his shoulder. And I think if I'm right, in the dummy, he's got the king of spades. And in his hand, he's got the ace of spades. And uh, there's a spade lead. And he thinks forever before deciding whether or not to win the trick with the king of spades. And eventually, he plays the king of spades. And I say, well, why are you so nervous? Because you've got the ace. And he says, well, I wasn't sure if the ace was on my right. And I looked at him, and then it dawned on me that he didn't realize that there was only one ace of spades in the pack. Oh, I know, but you know, we don't realize when we're playing at elite level or teaching that actually, you know, it's a minefield out there. Why should people understand all of these things that we just assume? Why should they? And that's the, in a way, that's part of the art of teaching is to actually realize that there's a whole chasm of lack of understanding. And why should we assume that they do understand? So it seems like in order to be a good teacher, you'd have to be a great player. But it also seems like it's drawing on very different types of skills and affinities, perhaps. And I'd love to get your perspective on that. 
I mean, I think top players are often not good teachers because they can't put themselves in the mind of the of the learning player. But if if you can put yourself in in their mind, and I'm very lucky because teaching does come fairly naturally to me. I mean, I'm a trained teacher. I've done school teaching and stuff like that. And I think if I'd never discovered bridge, I probably would be a teacher. But also because I can actually play quite well, I can easily assess the situation and give the right advice that's probably going to work for their experience level. So it does help to be a good teacher, but you've got to be a good communicator. You've got to be able to put yourself in their shoes as well. Absolutely. And is there a way in which your teaching improves your playing at all? Well, they do say that the best way to learn something is to teach it. And the teachers that I have employed at the Bridge Club become much better players when they do quite a lot of teaching. It's very noticeable. So absolutely right. Yes. You were obviously drawn to teaching as a career as a young man because you were interested in communicating with people and and you had and you took a pleasure in developing their knowledge set. But do you think those communication skills are also what makes you an excellent partner? because you're able to really hear your partner and work with your partner. Yeah, that's very kind of you. Very kind indeed. Absolutely. Yes, I do think that understanding, I'm I'm also a psychology graduate as well. So understanding your partner is, is so huge. I mean, the most important thing really in Bridge. And actually, why I love Bridge so much if I had to put it down to one reason, I would say it's the cooperation that you have with your partner. The secret, for example, of good defense is realizing that it's totally different across the table. So you've got to put yourself in your partner's shoes and you've got to realize that they're looking at a completely different set of 13 cards to you. And it is very different for them. And you have to put yourself in their shoes and make it easy for them. It's no use making a brilliant play it defense that your partner is bound to misunderstand. No use at all. Same in the bidding as well, actually. Same in the bidding. It is totally pointless to make a wonderful bid that your partner is just completely not going to understand. I used to play a lot of rubber bridge, you know, sort of money rubber bridge when I was in my 20s, and I still do actually sometimes. And when you're playing with, you know, much less experienced partners, you know, you realize that you've got to make life very easy for partners. You've got to be very practical in your bids and your defense. For example, if you realize that you've got to win two tricks in a suit to cash out and dummy's got, let's say, two small cards and you've got, let's say, the king and three small cards and you're on lead, don't lead low to your partner's ace, your partner may not lead one back to you. Now, of course, your partner probably should lead one back to you, but maybe maybe he or she won't. So you've got to lead the king and then you lead over to the ace. And now, you know, that's it. Job done. Nothing can go wrong. That's a, one of many very typical examples of, of how you've got to basically, you know, make it re- really, really easy for your partner. You know, it's no use winning the post-mortem, frankly. It's all about getting it right at the table. Oh, I thought it was all about the postmortem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is quite a bit about the postmortem, but yes. <laughs> Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Andrew, during the course of your teaching of Bridge, you must have encountered hundreds, if not thousands, of students. And I'm wondering if you have come to slot people into categories. And I don't know if those would be like particularly apt pupils who have a lot of potential in the game versus people who don't quite understand that the deck is made up of four suits, 13 cards apiece, and no no two cards alike. Or and and I know you've talked about naturalists versus scientists. Do you find that you can categorize students into one or another and do you adapt your teaching method as a result? Definitely adapt definitely adapt your teaching methods. Yes, absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, some people come in and you know that you know why they're there. They're there because they want to have a laugh, meet new people, new social skill. And the actual learning of the theory of bridge is very, very secondary in their list of priorities. So you're very different with them than you are perhaps to perhaps a slightly more nerdy person who's coming along and you know that they actually really want to go far with that bridge. So you really do treat them very, very differently. You've got to be very light and very up and lots of praise. Never, ever, ever criticize anybody i mean if someone makes a bit that is frankly absurd you'll always say yeah that's interesting i really like that you know here's something else you could have bid type of thing and everybody's you know you, they've got to leave the class and they've got to feel good that's it that's it the most important thing i feel like i get that sometimes from my teacher that's interesting or <laughs> now i'm I'm wondering about that. And also the way they say interesting. So they've got to actually mean that it's not not interesting <laughs> like that. <laughs> but the thing is, what you realise is that the people who are going to go far with Bridge will go far off their own bat. They will read, they will study, and in a way, they're independent learners and you've got to look after probably the less able students to make them all feel good so that they'll stick at it and learn to love bridge. And is it easy to recognize these different types right away? I'd have to say it is pretty easy. Yeah, absolutely. When people come into their first beginner class, the way they hold the cards, even, you know, immediately almost, and then, you know, very, very quickly, the way they play the cards, the tricks, I mean, you're not always right, and sometimes people who are don't hold the cards in a very sort of bridgey type of a way, and you know it's going to take them longer. If they're determined, they'll get there. They will get there. I mean, I don't think I've ever not been able to teach anybody bridge. And I'm also interested to know if you've noticed that some people tend to be stronger at the bidding from the beginning, and then they work on their defense or declare or play, and then they sort of circle back through the bidding, defense, declare or play? Or are there other people that are good at all three all at once? Absolutely right to ask that. There's definitely a correlation between how good they are, but you, you do get some people who are, are pretty good at the bidding, perhaps because they've sort of learned it in a sort of fairly rotish sort of a way. So they will know the right bid for a hand but their card playing is perhaps not of the same level. And then you get some people who are naturally good card players, but don't work at the bidding and and, and always bid the seat of their pants. Yes, their play is much better than their, their bidding. Do you empathize or identify with any category of learner? So when I learnt to play bridge... I was very lucky. My parents, who are still alive and playing, they taught us family bridge and we all had a fab time. Actually, I took it slightly slowly to it, but then I found a bridge book in our local library. Uh, In fact, it was a mobile library 
Do you remember mobile libraries where they, where they park outside and then, then, then they drive off? And I had a spare book ticket. I was probably about nine, maybe, or maybe 10. And I had no intention of getting a bridge book, but uh, I, I just, at random, the, they said, hurry up, hurry up, we're moving off. And so I, I, I can't remember the exact bridge book, but I think it was something like Begin Bridge with Reese, Terence Reese, who's an awesome bridge writer. And I started to read it. And I realized what an incredible game it is. And I mean, my love affair for bridge has never waned in 50 years, actually. But I remember in my teenage years when I was supposed to be doing medieval history A-levels and actually I was dealing out the cards in my room and looking to see what all the four players would do. It was the card play that really fascinated me. I loved the fact that you could wangle an extra trick out of a sort of four-card ending where you just wouldn't think it was possible and you could do it some sort of end play squeeze type position i love the card play and when i was a, a junior player i was known for being a, a very good card player and defender and a very wild bidder and then i moved to the open game and it was quite interesting that my card play which was better than almost all the other juniors was quite inferior to most of the top players. But my bidding was actually a lot sounder than most of these open players. And so it did a very quick swivel. And I would say that of the three areas of the game's bridge, if I had to pick the area that I'm probably weakest at, it's actually declare a play. Even though when I was a junior, that was probably what I was regarded as being best at. So that is interesting. Yes. I mean, I love defense because I love the cooperative aspect of the game. And as we were talking about, able to understand what partners thinking about. But declare a play where you're on your own. I don't know. It is slightly weaker than the other parts of the game. I mean, one player game such as poker. I've never enjoyed poker. I find it, frankly, really boring uh, when you're on your own. I love the cooperative aspect. And of course, declare a play your partner's dummy, and suddenly you're on your own. So doesn't fire me, just not in quite the same way, I suppose. I mean, I really force myself to do it as well as I can and not drop tricks, and hopefully I don't drop too many tricks. But I suppose that's the weakest area. And bidding is also quite a strong area for me. I enjoy both the uncontested auction. I enjoy the challenge of describing the hand to partner. I mean, one of my great friends, Oliver Siegel, we wrote the book Partnership Bidding in Bridge over... Uh, nearly 30 years ago now, actually. And it's still regarded as quite a, a good book and, and way ahead of its time. I have to say he did most of the work for it. But we go walking often now. He hardly plays. He's a, he's a QC. Actually, I should say Casey. And he's too busy to play too much bridge. But we go on long distance walks together, like let's say the Pennine Way we did this year. And we'll often bid hands, you know, from sort of bits of paper. And, you know, we love the challenge of that. So we, that's all about bidding in the uncontested auction. I mean, he's a fabulous bidder. We're both very good bidders and we have these amazing understandings. I really enjoy that. But I also enjoy the contested auction as well, what one can do, helping partner, but at the same time, making life awkward for the opponents, understanding the level to make the pressure bid. So I, I, I love bidding. I do love, I love the challenge of bidding, really. It's an incredible language. I'm wondering, Andrew, though, also connecting this with your enjoyment of teaching, if in fact, the thing that links the two is the counterintuitive idea that maybe it's because it's not about your ego. So the pleasure you get is when you connect it with the other person. So you enjoy the bidding because it's about doing something together. You enjoy the teaching because it's about seeing the externalization of the skill or what you've been able to bring to the other person. I think that's such a good point person. and it's very, very nice of you to say that. And I think you're absolutely right. I do. I think you're absolutely right. That is I think you've nailed it. And I don't think I'd ever thought about it quite in those terms, but it absolutely is the point. I do love the teaching. It's not about me being, you know, a wonderful guy teaching all of you. It's all of us learning together and having a fab time together. I've just finished teaching a, a wonderful weekend with a hundred or so people. And we've all, they've learned, we've all had huge fun and everybody gains by these sorts of experiences. And I do that a lot. Many days in the winter, I'm I'm teaching a, a full village hall somewhere in the countryside, doing 100, 120 people, probably raising money for some charity. And we're all having a learning experience together. 
it's not me and them. It's all of us together. And yeah, I love that. I do love that. Yours is an incredibly busy bridge life. In addition to playing, you write books and columns and there's lessons and seminars. And now you're producing a daily video bridge cast. Is that correct? Yes. I've had it in my mind for many, many years to do a daily video instructional deal every day. And as soon as COVID hit, I thought, and I said to Nick, who works with me at my bridge club, this is the time, Nick, let's do it. And within a week, we had three daily videos up for quite a lot of subscribers. So of course, during lockdown, where life took a very weird turn, people living differently didn't have a lot to do with their lives. And this was a really great thing that they loved. And I didn't know then that I was going to stay with it, but the demand has been quite high, which is great. And so I still put out four or five videos every day, actually, for different levels. And two or three of them run on the beginner and the improver I've already filmed, but uh, you know the intermediate, the advanced, and also very recently, Strong No Trump and Five Card Major Channel, new channel, uh, new material putting out either every day or, or three a week. And, you know, I do love it, actually. I really enjoy reaching out to a lot of people because people who are fairly isolated don't get a chance to get out very much. You know, this is something that they, they love their daily routine, maybe eating their breakfast, watching my, my daily instructional you know videos. So that is something I really, really have enjoyed. But it has changed my work life quite a lot. I have had to teach less at the bridge club as a result because otherwise I would just blow a gasket. There aren't enough hours in the day. And all work and no play at all makes Jack a dull boy, as they say. Is there a hot button issue in bridge that's particularly important to you today? Well, I mean, as we know, to play at the top of any pursuit and certainly bridge, you have to put in a lot of hours. You really do. You have to devote yourself to it. When I was growing up in my teens and 20s, you know, it was bridge, bridge, bridge. I would play for hour after hour. I once played for 28 solid hours. In fact, I then went back to my student digs and um, I was absolutely ravenous because I hadn't eaten for 28 hours and I had forgotten to eat because I was so absorbed in the bridge. And I thought, well, I'll just put a pizza on the, uh, on the, on the oven and I'll just lie down for a moment and then I'll have a pizza. I'm so hungry. Well, the next thing that arrives is the, is the fire engine, of course, fallen completely out for the count. But getting back to the fact that I played a huge amount of bridge, I read a huge amount of bridge, I talked a huge amount of bridge, that's what I did. There probably aren't that many people who are so mad stroke obsessed as I was because they've got other things going on, social media, and you know, they've got a life. And I'm not so sure that there are going to be the influx of good young players. So what's going to happen to top-level bridge? And another related aspect to, to this is that as bidding and defense in particular develop, the game is less and less intelligible to the average or the social player. You know, when I write my columns, I almost always have to change the auctions because if I'm playing or other top players are playing, you know, you get auctions that are, that are completely artificial, which is it's just not the game that learning players, social players understand at all. So how are they going to break through? It's like these two bubbles that are moving further and further apart, actually. So I, I don't know how it's actually going to go. I mean, I'm very, very unusual that I straddle both the two bubbles, but very, very few other people do. Most of the other top bridge players live only in their bubble. And it's a, it's a lovely bubble. They're lovely people and they go from tournament to tournament and they play brilliant bridge, more and more brilliant with more and more artificial tools. Ten years ago, no one knew Gazilli and now almost all the top players play Gazilli. But does the social player know what Gazilli is? No way, Jose. And, and so these two bubbles are moving further and further apart. And it is interesting to know how it is all going to uh, go. I'm really interested in this because I was always aware as a developing player that there was this whole other bridge universe somewhere. And it seemed to have very little to do with anything that I was doing. And then as I became more aware of it, 
I was a little bit annoyed no one had ever explained it to me, but I also appreciate that it's a lot to know and a lot to take on. And I don't quite know at what point one should introduce, you know, a new player to these galaxies of bridge. And then on the other hand, I think, well, if you're interested, you're going to find out yourself somewhat as Jocelyn and I have, you go on and you you learn and you discover. And so I'm not quite sure. Do you feel that there's a happy medium? or I definitely think that the top players owe it to the game to be more inclusive to people who are trying to break into that bubble. I definitely think that a lot of top players don't make the effort at all. For example, when you're on BBO, don't claim like a trick five and say, you know, you get a trick and I can squeeze you and this and that and the other and everybody puts into their car- cards into the pocket and aren't they clever? Actually, what you re- when you're on BBO, playing in some average sort of tournament, you're actually more playing to the couple of thousand people who are actually watching on BBO and really learning and loving it than you are actually playing at the table. Don't make these early claims. Make it live for the people who are watching it. It's really important that you make it live and you make it more accessible so that you bring those two bubbles together. So you're probably fairly exceptional that you're you're making your way into that exclusive bubble, but they don't make it easy. A lot of these top players do not make it easy and they should make it easier. I do think, though, that they kind of enjoy not making it easy. I think in a way they, oh, I have certainly played against people who they lord it over you. And I think part of that obfuscation is about keeping you out and the pleasure of keeping you out. I hate to agree with you, but I definitely do agree with you. And I really don't like that attitude at all. I really abhor it. I think it's totally wrong. They've got to be really welcoming for new players to come into it. They really have. Okay, so you you say there's a responsibility on the shoulders of the top players to be more open and inclusive and... Correct. Make it more accessible and include people who are coming through. Absolutely right, yes. Right, but also because they want people to be playing the game and it's not just about being accessible, it's about the message that sends about it being a game that everybody should feel welcome to play. Totally agree. I don't think they necessarily think that, but you are so right. Andrew, what is something that people might be very surprised to learn about you? That I nearly died in a hill walking accident and had to be airlifted off a mountain in a helicopter and broke all my bones. And I was very lucky to be found. Um, Yeah, that was pretty stupid. Where and when was that? That was in the Lake District in 2001. How long did it take you? until you were playing bridge again? Well, it was the 23rd of February that I injured myself and I did go to the Summer Nationals. That was the first bridge I played, but I was on crutches. I remember with my friend Marshall Lewis, we went to, uh, it was at Toronto, the Nationals, and I arrived a day early and so did he, and we went to the Niagara Falls I remember going around the Niagara Falls on crutches and it was quite damp and wet. And I thought, this is absolute madness to be doing this. But I didn't slip over. But then I remember I had to have my foot up on a chair when I was playing, of course, because I I was pretty banged up and my foot was, I nearly lost my foot. Anyway, I remember some chap who I was playing against saying, why have you why have you got your foot up on that chair? And I said, well, can't you see? Because it was all in plaster. And then he said, well, you shouldn't be playing. And I thought, excuse me? I mean, what a weird thing to say. What an outrageous thing to say, actually. Very strange. I know, I know. You, I know. you clearly still enjoy rambling, and so <laughs> it didn't put you off. Definitely. I love long-distance walks and just going off and, and walking and maybe looking at nature or maybe listening to some audio book or, or podcast or something like Sorry Partner. <laughs> do you think you were a different player before your accident that it has had an effect on how you look at the game i do actually i mean i do th- it, it is a bit of a sort of truism that that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger and you look at life differently and it is definitely true for me and it didn't happen immediately either it wasn't like the day after my accident i i was a changed person it took years more than months for me to change. And that may just be the natural change with age as well. It, the accident may have just been incidental, but I do think that maybe I became nicer in a way at the table and perhaps away from the table. 
Yeah, it was a couple of years after my accident that I started running lots of charity bridge things around the country and giving back to the game as much as I could. Maybe I didn't do that before. Maybe I would have done that anyway, but I think I like I do like to think that the accident definitely did affect me in a, in a, in a positive way. Yes. So you've you've been doing more charity work since the accident? Definitely a lot more. I, absolutely, yes. Absolutely. I mean, I I go around the country during the winter months mainly, probably two or three days a week, and I'm running a big charity bridge event. And yeah, I mean, I get paid a sort of non-commercial fee, so I'm not doing it totally for nothing. But, you know, the charity is making about 5,000 quid Mm. of a day, and everybody's learned some fun bridge. We've all had a lovely time. We've had a a nice lunch, maybe a glass of red wine or something, and everyone's a winner. And they are great days. They really are. And I I really do enjoy them. Which charities are particularly important to you? Well, to be honest, most of them are I do for the lo- for the charity that the org- local organizer will do. But personally, there's a charity called Charlie Waller, which is close to me because this was a, a young man who committed suicide from depression and also Mind, the charity Mind as well, which is all about mental health. So connected with mental health generally would be the charities that I would choose to to raise money for if I was given the choice, which I sometimes am. I mean, I think it's so hard in the in the current world that we live in to be a young person. When we were growing up, life was a lot simpler. But now, you know, you've got your Instagram and your TikToks and this and that, and you can't hide, you know, how many likes you get. I think it's really tough being a young person, and it's no surprise that there's a mental health epidemic. It really, it's no surprise. What do you know now that you wish you had known then? I think not to take things so seriously, probably. Tomorrow's another day. The sun's going to come up in the morning. You know, don't be too gutted. Try absolutely flat out. But if it doesn't work out for you that day, que sera, sera. Life moves on. Living or dead, historical figure, fictional character, what have you, how would you compose your dream team? Gosh, that's a great question, Jocelyn. The perfect bridge team. Well, I've got to have Jesus Christ. I bet he's a pretty Sampa player. (laughs) And I'd love to have Buddha on the team as well because, uh, well, I mean, you've got to have Buddha, haven't you? He'd probably know how to move on pretty well from the bad hand. You're so right. (laughs) And I think it's got to be Roger Federer, hasn't it, making up the four? I don't know which of those three I'd, uh, I'd partner. I suppose maybe we play a sort of little pivot and I have a go with all three. Yeah. And who would you pick to be your all-time perfect partner? Well, I'd be very curious to play with a, with a player of the past, actually, to know how Bridges developed since the early years. I mean, maybe someone like Freddie Shinewold. I mean, I never knew him. But someone like that, who, who was around in the early development of Bridge, maybe even Terence Reese, but I don't think he was particularly uh, Sampa at the table, Terence, although a brilliant, brilliant player. But I'd also be uh, curious to play with someone uh, in the future. I mean, it, it would be lovely to know what Bridge was like in 50 years' time. But if I have to play with someone right now... I mean, I've loved all the partners I've played with, you know, Zia, Tony Forrester and all the rest, too, too numerous to mention. But maybe David Gold. We've got a sort of budding partnership and various things have conspired against us being able to play with each other much at the moment. But uh, we always have done very, very well together. We had this hand where we got a bit lucky and we bid to this this incredible seven diamonds in in the world transnational teams a couple of years back where we'd set spades and we had a 5-4 spade fit. And suddenly, at the last gasp, we swiveled into playing seven diamonds on a 4-3 fit. In fact, it's on YouTube. It's a bit of fun, that. uh, And and people, they said it was the best auction they'd ever seen. So that was a lot of fun, actually. Uh, So I'll pick David Gold as my perfect partner. How about that? From the present time. Love it. Do you have a favorite convention or gadget that you really enjoy playing with your partners? Well, that's a very good question. I actually think conventions and gadgets are overrated and that the key to playing good bridge is counting and using logic, understanding the the natural language of the game. So 
I'm not a massive conventions person, but I guess I would put negative doubles number one. I mean, I think negative doubles need to get the marketing team and get the, get the name changed. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> the, it is a fabulous, uh, it, you know, it's a must-play convention, yes. Fabulous doubles. <laughs> hey, quite right. <laughs> Extraordinary doubles. <laughs> yes, and much better, much, much better, yes. So I'd put that, uh, I'd, put, I'd probably put negative doubles pretty close to the top, yeah. Is there a convention that you really dislike? And when a partner asks you to play it, you kind of inwardly groan and then acquiesce because you're a good partner? Another great question. Um, well, I think all the forms of ace asking conventions are overrated. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Blackwood. Uh, Roman keycard, Blackwood, Minerwood, all of Gerber, all of those gadgets. Any gadget that changes the whole flow of the auction from being a cooperative situation into a reducing partner to the role of an ace answering robot, for me, is detrimental. And I know there are some hands where you want a bit Blackwood or Roman keycard, Blackwood, but that is definitely an overrated convention. It really is. Also, Lebensoul as well. I can very much live without Lebensoul. I think as long as you play take out doubles after your partner's open one, no trump, and there's been a, an overcall on your right, as long as double is take and not penalties, I think you can handle almost every <laughs> hand, really. So that's another convention I could definitely leave behind uh, Lebensoul. So do you not use any ace-asking conventions? I do, absolutely, I do. But certainly when Oliver Siegel and I are bidding as we're walking along the Pennine Way, we have a sort of unwritten rule as we're bidding these hands that neither of us will use Blackwood. It's almost a, defe a defeat when one of us uses Blackwood because suddenly everything changes. No longer have we ever got a lovely sort of toing and froing of natural bidding and exchange of information and no else. And suddenly it's, how many aces do you have, partner? You know, it changes it. But I think you have ace asking bids covered on like page 350 of Ropes and Seagull, no? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's definitely a role for ace asking. And also another pet hate of mine is exclusion Blackwood. That I actually really don't like playing. I like to play that big jumps to five of a suit are void showing, but they're not specifically asking for all the key cards outside that void they're saying i've got a void i've got a big hand i've got small or grand slam intent how do you feel about things and i find that works a lot better and actually i have persuaded a few people to adopt uh, that more sort of nuanced uh, approach what's the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given so i remember the late and great john armstrong i was uh, on a junior training camp and he came and gave a talk to us and he said that, let's say you have two really bad boards at the start of the session. Don't try and get it back. Just try and end the session two boards down, but don't try and get it back because it'll go pear-shaped. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fabulous talking to you. Thanks so much. It's been great. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Catherine and Jocelyn. I loved it too. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Andrew Robson. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner Posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Paul Chirasso and Jade Gray. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or at Sorry Partner Podcast on Instagram or send us a voice message. And please consider supporting the show. You'll get a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time, and other supporter benefits. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Andrew says, if you've had a couple of bad boards, don't try to get them back. That way madness lies. Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.